0: On this episode of Jeff Does Vegas.
1: It was the first album I ever bought too. My brothers uh, belonged to those CD club. Remember those? My brothers were like taking pity on me because I was the baby and I wanted a CD too. And so they're like, okay, fine, you can pick one. And I was trying to be cool. So I, I picked Bad Out of Hell because the cover was scary. And I thought, okay, they're going to think I'm cool because I'm picking this really scary one. It came and same thing. I was just enthralled by the album art. And then I remember putting it in and, and Bad Out of Hell started playing and I was like, Whoa,
0: this is awesome. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction Knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 133 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we jump into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Jeff Schumacher, Vice President of Exhibits and Programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Jeff joined me once again to help separate fantasy from reality, this time as it relates to the story of mobster Benjamin Siegel and the 1991 film Bugsy, starring Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, jump into the archives at JeffDoesVegas.com or search out episode number 132, Bugsy, Fact versus Fiction. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. October 21st, 1977 saw the release of what would eventually become one of the best-selling albums of all time. Meatloaf's Bat out of Hell The concept for the album came from a musical that writer and composer Jim Steinman had conceived back in 1974. Meatloaf and Steinman spent the better part of 1975 rewriting and recording tracks for the album, then close to two years auditioning the record and getting rejected by every single record company they presented it to. In mid-1977, the album was picked up and released by Epic Records subsidiary Cleveland Records. But it didn't really get much traction until a concert video of the song Bad Out of Hell aired on BBC Television. Then it all blew up. Bad Out of Hell went on to sell over 43 million copies worldwide and it's still selling like crazy today. It's certified 14 times platinum in the United States. It's the best-selling album of all time in Australia. And it spent a total of 530 weeks on the UK album charts. Flash forward about 20 years. In the late 1990s, word of a new musical based on Bad Out of Hell began to surface. In 2008, the show was officially announced and began workshopping in New York City in 2015. It finally hit the stage in the UK in Manchester in 2017 before moving to London's famed West End. After opening in Toronto and taking the show on the road across North America and around the world, it was revealed in early 2022 that the theater in the Paris Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas would be home to a new resident production of *Bad to Hell, the musical. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is veteran Vegas performer Ann Martinez, who plays the part of Sloan in *Bad Out Hell. Anne and I chatted about what initially brought her to Las Vegas a decade ago and some of her past shows and performances. We talked about her love for the music of Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, what makes Bad Out of Hell such a special show to be a part of, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Anne Martinez.
1: I'm originally from Rochester, New York. Uh, I made the move in the summer of 2012. Uh, my husband got hired with Cirque du Soleil's production of O as a technician and scuba diver. And uh, I have uh, my best friend from college. He actually lives out here and his little girl is my godchild. So he has been kind of slowly brainwashing me to move out here. And so I was doing little uh, projects here on breaks from other gigs. And then, uh, when my husband got hired with Cirque, it just kind of finally all came together.
0: And so was performing something that you always wanted to do? I know so many performers and so many people that I've chatted with in the past have said, yep, like pretty much right out of the womb. I was singing, dancing, acting, performing for family. Was that pretty much the case for yourself?
1: Yeah. Uh, my parents put me in dance class when I was two years old. So I started really young and then I was working as a professional ballerina when I was eight. So I, I started, uh, pretty young but my parents are really supportive of the arts and so we were always going to productions and symphonies and just seeing all different types of stuff and then uh, when I was 11 years old and I played Suzuki violin when I was three I started playing violin so I was always doing music and then when I was 11 I auditioned for the musical Annie because when your name is Annie you get many many gifts from the musical and so (laughs) the pressure was on And I had never sung by myself before, um, but I ended up booking the job uh, as an orphan and understudying the lead. So my first musical theater experience was uh, very professional, and I I really loved it. And that's when I was like, yeah, let's do this forever.
0: And so I assume you did formal education for the arts as well.
1: Yes, um, I went to uh, a few different um, uh, prestigious kind of like program schools, the Eastman School of Music. And then um I did some separate company uh work as a kid. And then uh I got my BFA in acting at uh, SUNY Fredonia in New York. And then uh I went on and did my master's uh at the Central School of Feature Drama and Rada in London, UK. So I did uh I went right away into my grad work because it is uh also uh shorter in uh the UK it's accelerated. So I would not suggest that for anyone unless they want their brain to explode. But um, I, uh, I did that right away. Uh, did some West end, came home and uh, wrote my thesis and interned at an equity theater and then hit New York.
0: Something I always like to ask the performers that I interview on the podcast is if you hadn't gone in this direction and gone into working in entertainment, um, what would you be doing? What do you think you'd be doing? Was there something else that you had in mind?
1: Oh, I definitely would have uh, been a lawyer for sure. I have a minor in law. I just find it very interesting. But I would have worked. I would love to do like go hardcore into um, like FBI, like uh, criminal studies. Um, I think as an actor, we're always really interested in human beings and how how we think and why we do what we do. It helps us understand how to play different characters. So I've always found psychology very interesting, um, but I cannot solve anyone's problem. So it (laughs) would definitely be in the, unlike more of the law side of things for me personally. But yeah.
0: I always like to find out about the first Vegas gig. So many performers that I've talked to have, um, when they've moved to Vegas they've really had to slug it out they've had to hustle they've had to do the uh, the dancing dealer or the dancing bartender type gig things like that um, what about yourself did you jump right into working or did you have to kind of go the back road?
1: I was really lucky I booked a show my first day I got here I flew in from New York and I was reading um, at the time we had a website that hosted all the auditions in, in Vegas and it, it just said 80s rock show. And I was like, oh, cool. So I go over to the stratosphere and I just made it like all my stuff was in the car and I just ran in from flying and uh, I sang for a show called Fight, which was a vampire 80s rock uh, show where the dancers were topless. But I didn't know that. I just thought it was this rock show. And then the poster was a, a girl with vampire fangs but she was playing the guitar. And I was like, Oh, cute. Maybe it's like a Halloween thing. Cause it was like late summer. And then they had me, uh, they hired me on the spot and then they asked me to stay that evening and watch the show. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I was a little overwhelmed and surprised. I'd never seen a topless show before ever. So I was like, Oh my gosh. And you know, it was a, it was a really cool show. It was really intense. And, um, probably one of the sweetest casts I've ever worked with and talented. And and it was really cool. So I was lucky at literally the day I got here, I booked a show and then I just kind of kept booking shows from there on in. So it was, it was a really cool experience.
0: I uh, I remember Bite. Bite was a show that, unfortunately, I never actually got to see. But it was always one of those shows that was on my list. And I, I, I have honestly I had no idea that it was a topless show. I would have been just as surprised as you uh, going to the show.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I thought it was like everyone's just gonna be dancing to rock music, and all of a sudden, everyone comes out and they're like, ah, you know, with their thanks and then ripping their shirts off. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> do I have to do this? Like, I was just so, it was just so different. Um, but it, it kind of showed me what's really cool about Vegas is that there's, there's so many different types of entertainment and it was a huge, uh, education for me and, um, why it's so important for things in Vegas to be exclusive, because that's what makes Vegas special and that's what, uh, keeps business working. And, uh, it was, it was cool to, to have that experience right away.
0: You've worked in a ton of Vegas shows too. Like, you're one of those people that it seems like you never stop. <laughs> no. I mean, I've seen you at Monday's dark a bunch of times. I've seen your band red penny arcade perform a few times. You've done zombie burlesque. You've worked with Zoe Bowie. You've been a part of the cast of fantasy. Um, But one of my, my favorite performances favorite shows that I've seen you in was um, Baz at the Venetian, such a great show. And I was so, so sad when that show closed.
1: Yeah, me too. That was, that was an extremely difficult uh, show. And um, it was an intense experience for me um, because I came in originally uh, with a contract just to play Daisy for about a month. Uh, they had like a break in between uh, another gal coming in. And so they needed someone to cover the role. And then uh, after the month, they asked me to stay as a full-time understudy for the lead. And I was like, yeah, sure. Thinking I would be you know sitting in the music booth knitting, you know, getting paid to hit some high notes in the mic for, you know, choral sec- sections. And then uh, by January, I was playing team full time uh, for about a year, uh, almost two years. So it was, it was really uh, cool because it wasn't even a role that I was looked at for. Um, and uh, I had jumped into it right away. And the, the president of the hotel was extremely supportive uh, with me playing the role. So it was, it was a really cool It was the first time I had done uh, something that was very close to an actual quote unquote musical in Vegas, as opposed to our kind of different types of entertainment, which is more um, like presentational theater. So it was cool to, to kind of jump into playing a a character again.
0: Baz was such a, Baz was such a unique show in the way it was presented and the storyline and the characters and looking back on it, I sometimes wonder if maybe the Vegas audience just didn't get it, if that makes sense. Do you think a show like Baz maybe would have lasted longer if it wasn't in Las Vegas?
1: Um, I don't know. I think, I think in any uh, show, especially nowadays, um, so much has to go into the marketing. Because when people come, if they don't see it, if they don't know what it is immediately, they're not going to come. And I think uh, that's a mistake uh, we all make in this, the, the world today, is um, adjusting our marketing for uh, an audience. I would say like market your project, your show, whatever, as though the person looking at it does not speak English at all and has no idea what you're talking about. So it should be something that's very easy to pronounce, uh, bright colors that are attracted to the eye and have some kind of movement and some kind of a, a reel that lets me know what it is in thirty seconds, which is very difficult um, because there is so much to do in town. But uh, but yeah, I think the I think the show was great. I think it was very beautiful. Um, but for me, it's all about if if someone doesn't know what it is, uh, they're not going to purchase. So, but when we did have people come, they really loved it. So that's all I can do as a as a performer is. You know, kind of release that to the people who are in charge of that, and then hope that it um, it connects with the audience. The uh, only thing I can do is, is tell the story, and that's you know, and that was very important uh, to all of us in the cast every night. And so, when people did come to the show, they they really enjoyed it. They enjoyed what they saw, and uh, we could be ambiguous on certain things and specific in others. So, yeah, I think it's just kind of you have to have that full combo. The most amazing show could have incredible reviews, but if people don't know how to get there or what it is uh, right away, you risk, you know, people not coming. But it, it just happens. And sometimes hotels, you know, they closed us uh, because they were going to have a exhibition coming in. And uh, so we closed and then the exhibition never came. The, shows, the theater's been empty since. So you just you never know what's going on business wise with the hotels. And I respect that, you know, it's not really my lane. So you have to always kind of remember the hotel, uh, especially when they're invested in something, it's up to them what they would like to do with the property.
0: I want to talk about when you first moved to Las Vegas, was there anything that really surprised you about the city? I know other people that I've spoken to and, and even myself now that I've been spending more time in the city and, and getting away from the tourist areas and away from the strip, I'm always kind of surprised about how sprawled out and normal the city is. And I think for a lot of people, it really isn't what they're expecting. Was that kind of the same deal for yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you leave the strip area, it's like a small town, you know, they know us at the grocery store, they know us at the bank, you know? So I think it kind of surprised me at um, how lovely it is to, To live here and that you know you can own a home and have children and own your cars and have a house and and still work in your field. Whereas you know like in New York, it's so expensive for a tiny little place. You know, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life paying rent. And uh, my parents were very supportive, but my my dad especially always said you are not to wait tables. That's not why you've worked so hard because you're here to work and make money. This is a business, and so. You know, in New York, it was kind of like, well, you have to wait tables for a year and pay your dues before you know, you'll even be seen by certain people. And I was like, you know, I don't need that check mark on my resume of doing Broadway. I would much rather. I did West End and had that thrill. I was like, I'm here to make money and make a living, and I want to be able to settle down somewhere and still work. And I think that's what's so great about Vegas is that people in this business can live here and work here, and it quite sweet. It's just, you know, when you go to the strip, you just get ready for crazy pants, McGee coming at you at all places. So it's very entertaining. It's There's always something to see. Um, but I love that, you know, when you're off strip, there's a dog park and, you know, there are, if you're religious, there are tons of churches and other places you can go to worship and there's, you know, groups you can talk to and uh, people here are very nice. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a quirky little world it's it's that was a surprise for me uh definitely and i'm always surprised by the insanity that i see (laughs) weekly um and that's always entertaining we were i was driving on the 15 when i first moved here and uh there was was heavy traffic so you know we're kind of stuck and i looked to my right and a guy dressed as elvis uh pulled up next to me in a motorized wheelchair And he had a huge boa constrictor, a real one, alive, around his neck. And he just was like, right past me. And I was like, this is where I live. (laughs) So that was probably that, like, okay moment for me. Yeah. Um,
0: The other thing that a lot of people I've (laughs) talked to that have made the move from um, New York or Los Angeles to Las Vegas in, in the entertainment world is... Is how much more of a community feeling it is, where it seems like everybody is willing to help each other out as opposed to stab each other in the back.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, New York and uh, L.A. are very competitive, um, and I've always, uh, I've always thought that's such a uh, a bad choice, in, in my opinion, only because it's, there's no way you can ever win. You know, there's always something that you're not going to get, and art. Uh, this business is tough because. We have to be so vulnerable to do what we do, and so our hearts are already on our sleeves if you don't get something, it already hurts. So to add competition with somebody that you have no control over is, is to, in my opinion, a bad idea. Um, and I've watched a lot of people um, suffer mentally from that. So I always kind of steer clear of that and people who are like that. Uh, and there are some people in Vegas who are, who are like that and they're just, you know, unfortunately. But the, the vast majority um, are people, we just want to work and do our jobs and, and we know who we are and what we do. And so if something doesn't work out, you know, it's on us and you just kind of move on. And um, yeah, I'm all, I mean, me personally, I'm all about helping people out. Like, you know, when you move to a new place, you don't know anybody. And here it's a lot of networking. I always tell them, like, go sing here, talk to this person. If you need help, let me know. Here's some street music. Oh, I'm auditioning for this. I'm like, oh, they're going to make you sing this song. Make sure you know this. Um, uh, just because, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat. So we, we all just want to work. So it, it's been cool to be in a town that's the vast majority of that mentality to be kind and supportive. And I genuinely enjoy watching other women, you know, succeed. It's really cool because I we all know how difficult uh, this business is anyway. So when I see somebody who I know works so hard, it it makes me really happy because I I know the work she put in and how much it means to her to be in that moment. So it's it's a nice thing to see.
0: My understanding is that the people who are not nice people don't last very long in Las Vegas.
1: No, they do not. Um, it was, when I moved out here, it was really tough. I had, I had quite a, a group, really, really not very nice, uh, to me. And it was at the time it was really, really hurtful because I just didn't understand. Um, but they all just kind of disappeared later. Um, because you know, there people like that in any profession, um, when you're spending so much time on foolishness, you spend less time on your own work, your own craft, your own dreams, your own family, you know, it's a distraction and it's just like a, a spiral down of just being unhappy. Nothing's ever enough. And so, yeah, it just doesn't work, but there's a lot of people in this town who have been so incredibly kind and helpful to me personally, and they are always working. They're always thriving. They're always lovely. No matter ups or downs, they just keep on working. And I'm like, well, they work because they're lovely to work with. I've met a lot of people who, in my career who are extremely talented, way better singer than me, way more beautiful, way more talented. I'm like a little troll next to them. But I've booked gigs uh, because I was on time. And I was polite to the pianist. And um, I I knew my material. It's like little things like that that uh, really separate the people who continue to work uh, and the people who just kind of fall out from it all it's just all about i think that's like that in every business though the uh the kinder you are and the easier you are to work with um is the most important thing and uh everything else you bring is just a plus
0: well those people are gone they have left las vegas they are no longer a part of the world that we are speaking of today you however are still there and you are now on the vegas strip headlining a brand new show Bat Outta Hell, the musical at the Paris Theater. I am so excited for this show. Hey. And I'm going to go off on my own little bit of a tangent here for just a second, if that's okay. Please do. Meatloaf's Bat Outta Hell is an album that is very special to me for a variety of reasons. Um, My dad was a huge music fanatic, and he had a, a massive... Um, album collection, which when he passed away back in 2020, I inherited. And one of those albums was Bad Outta Hell. It's an album that I used to listen to constantly to the point where I I drove everybody nuts (laughs) listening to Bad Outta Hell. And I mean, I was a kid. I was five, six, maybe seven years old when I started listening to it. And I mean, the album artwork on that album cover was just incredible. And I would just spend hours staring at that album cover and um dissecting it and looking for new details and finding something new every time i would look at it so to have this music brought to life in the form of a a musical and a show and presented in such a a unique way is so cool to me and so amazing to me and i'm i'm so happy to see it come to life in this way?
1: Well, Jim Simon, when he was writing it, he was in college, and uh, he had this dream of writing this kind of Peter Pan-esque musical, and uh, that's the first album. So he actually wanted it to be a musical, and he couldn't find just the backing for it. And in frustration, he was like, oh my God, let's just record it like an album, just so I can have a recording. And so it really was intended to be a musical the first album and then quite accidentally the album blew up because like everyone just was going crazy about it so everything Jim wrote all of his music and that was singing it was always intended to be a theatrical for a a play and so when I when I got this job and the producers told me that I, I was like oh my god and I I just went home and I you know, got a glass of wine, turned the lights out and just was like, I'm going to listen to this whole album, to back, knowing that it was meant to be a musical. And I, it was a totally different experience. I kind of understood like, you know, they have those like pauses and then they're like, the, sometimes there's like talking before something. And I was like, oh my God, that's what he meant this whole time. It's like the, the music took on a whole new meaning and uh, all of his stuff, knowing that with his entire canon, um, really kind of added a, a different kind of a weight to already brilliant music. It was the first album I ever bought too. My brother's uh, belong to one of those CD club. Remember those?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I still owe Columbia house money actually. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we all do. We all owe them like 599. But um, my brothers were like taking pity on me because I was the baby and I wanted a CD too. And so they're like, okay, fine. You can pick one. And I was trying to be cool. So I, I picked that out of hell because the cover was scary. And I thought, okay, they're gonna think I'm cool because I'm picking this really scary one. And um it came and same thing. I was just enthralled by the album art. And then I remember, you know, putting it in and, and bad at hell started playing, and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And I so I've always loved that music. So it was it was really cool. Um when I got the that call to come and audition for this, you know, I started kind of devouring all the information I could find about the musical and how it came to be.
0: Let's talk about the musical, obviously, because it does have a plot. It's got a storyline. What is the story of Bad to of Hell?
1: So the, the Notes version is, uh, it's this post-apocalyptic city. And there's all, there's this kind of motorcycle punk gang, and they're all 18 forever. Kind of like the Lost Boys in Peter Pan-ish. And, uh, they've got all these different characters that are in the group and they all kind of have their little statuses. And their leader is named Strat. And he's like their, you know, crazy fearless leader. And, uh, in this city, and they're always just causing chaos I and mean, they're spray painting stuff, blowing things up, just being a pain in the butt. And there's this huge tower in the middle of the city. And that's where my character Sloan lives. And I live there with my husband Falco. Uh, that's played by Travis Clover. And then uh, we have our daughter named Raven, and that's played by Alize Cruz, and she is turning 18. And uh, the the conflict between the parents, is the father wants her to stay inside forever. We keep her locked up in the tower, kind of like Rapunzel. And I secretly want her to go out and have some fun. So she ends up falling in love with the head of this gang, Strat, and Chaos Ensues. So there's these two love stories, the love story between... The, the two young people. And then there's this love story between the parents who had their daughter very young, they were 16. And so they're young parents and very flawed and they're living in this wild world. Everything's just con- continual chaos and lots of leather. And uh, it kind of is uh, what happens as the story goes along and uh, both of them, uh, the challenges both of the couples face. And if they decide to continue together, all surrounded by, music and mayhem and magic and, um, Jim Simon's canon. cannon.
0: It's really kind of, a, a Peter Pan, Romeo and Juliet, all of this sort of yeah. rolled into one with some just really kick-ass music thrown in.
1: Like just ridiculously kick-ass music. And, uh, the, the cast, I mean, this cast is packed full of ridiculous, insanely talented people. Um, because this show is hard. You can't, you can't uh, just do one. You have to sing this music, which is very hard, and you must dance. This is probably some of the hardest choreography I've ever seen. It's very quirky and very different, uh, and very much its own style for a reason. You know the way the the Lost that group dances. Um, it's very much their language. So it's I just watching them learn it. It stressed me out, <laughs> and I do like a few counts of eight with them. And I you know had to work that. A, quite a bit by myself on my own time, just because it's very different. Um, And the, the look of the show too, it's, it's kind of like the celebration of like punk rock, um, you know, Iggy pop, you know, glam rock. And, uh, um, but you know, it all comes down to the, just the rawness of uh, falling in love and, and what happens to you when you fall in love and the risks you take, uh, what happens when that person puts you you know, how do you get back to them if you want to? You know, decisions being made growing up, you know, all those things, innocence. And, uh, you know, it's it's a really cool show. I was, I was surprised at how much I really genuinely liked it uh, in rehearsals. And now that we're open, uh, I can see the audience a little bit, but there are certain sections I can see them a little bit more but I can hear them singing along to the songs and, and crying and cheering. And, you know, it's, it's cool to see that I know how much that music meant to me and to you too, you know, and to see other people, you know, just going wild during that out of hell. is like, this is really cool. And that's why we do what we do. You know, we, as entertainers, we want to invoke an emotion. We want you to remember a time in your life or to see, something you've never experienced now that's that's our job and so to see people going through that every night is really it's such a cool gift uh because that's you know why why we do what we do it's it's really cool
0: after the break ann shares the deep dive she took into jim steinman's catalog to prepare for her role in battle to hell and we talk about the show's amazing cast and how she and a co-star are helping newbies to vegas adjust to life in sin city that's next on jeff does vegas You mentioned the cast of this show and you mentioned Travis Clower, who, I mean, Travis is a a Vegas veteran in and of itself. I mean, he did, what was it, about a billion performances at Jersey Boys or something like that? He's
1: (laughs) the longest run. He holds the record of playing Frankie Valli the longest. He's a beast. And he's a beast. But it was, we've always wanted to work together in the show. It just never happened. And then uh, callbacks were really intense. It was like two weeks of, of callbacks. And as you go along, you know, it's less and less people. And then the last day they're pairing people up, you know, to do this. And we sing um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which is, you know, eight minutes of just, you know, blood going everywhere, bleeding, screaming vocals. It's crazy. <laughs> and um, they had to sing it like over and over and over and over. And we had done it about six times in a row that day. And they asked her, can you do it one more time? And we're like, sure. And he looked at me and was like, Oh my God. I was like, (laughs) I I think I got one left in me. He's like, yeah, me too. But um Travis, uh, I think with he and I, we just like each other in life. You know, we have a lot of respect for each other. And we both are very focused, but we're also fearless. So we're willing to just go for it. And we have the other ones back. So I felt so incredibly safe. Uh working with him musically and with all, cause we do a lot of physical stuff too. There's a lot of combat in the show and paradise. We're just jumping all over the place. It's wild. And um you have to really take care of each other while singing this insane music. So it takes a lot of concentration and focus and being very precise. And he's just absolutely flawless and just the most generous actor um, I've ever worked with. It's just been, a, it's, it's really easy he makes difficult stuff very easy and um, having that kind of trust with another actor is is so rare and such a gift and um, I know I'm privileged every day to to work with him and we have so much fun and we're both you know very chill and just kind of come into our show go home so it's a it's a very nice stress-free environment to to work in with him and and we're also Working with people of all different ages. You now, some people, this is like their first job ever. And other people have been working forever. So watching other uh, actors in the show have that experience. Our, uh, our gentleman who plays Strat, um, who's also named Travis, ironically. Um, he's never done theater ever. Like, never stepped foot in a musical ever in his life. He's a, he's a rocker. He's done band work. He won second place in voice in Canada. He opened for Bon Jovi. And this kid's just like, just a rocker, period. And I would be so scared to come into something I didn't know anything about. And he was so brave. I mean, they're having him jumping all over the place, ripping his shirt off and like popping blood packs everywhere and doing all this crazy stuff. And he never faltered one. He was like, okay, sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll do that. I'm like, this kid's got involved, <laughs> and then alizé who plays the other female lead she's um she's you know worked and stuff she came into the theater a lot later and uh she's you know done some like smaller roles ensemble work and uh, she booked this part and it is a beast i mean she is singing and to be that young and she's another one just she's so brave i i admire her tenacity and She also has the humility to ask questions and want to be more, wanting to learn more, wanting to push her performance further. And um, to have that kind of uh, want to, to to learn and to be better at that age when given, you know, something that could make anyone else kind of egotistical, it, it it's not even a drop in her. She's very, she wants to learn. She wants to learn. She wants to grow. She wants to be, and watching her, completely transform into this character. And the two of them get stronger and stronger and stronger every night. Travis and I sit back and watch them. And we're like, this is so cool watching these two people
0: like explode. Have you and Travis sort of taken on almost the mom and dad role with some of the, the rookies that have come on to sort of help guide them? Because I would imagine life in a, in a Vegas show Maybe you've got some preconceived notions and uh, of what your life is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Have you been sort of able to say, "Okay, guys, here's here's kind of what you should or shouldn't do." You know, don't oh, go yeah. out partying every night after the show, oh, in spite of wanting yeah. to do that. That kind of stuff.
1: Uh, I think it's been more like for me, it's been like, "Hey, if you need a doctor, or like to get your hair done, or your nail, like here's call this person. If you need facial, call this person." Um, helping like that. And when people have asked questions, you know, absolutely. Uh, for Travis and I, especially, we're, we're very calm and, um, we're also very serious about what we do, you know, happy and fun and everything, but we're very serious. And so, um, and I know because I, I kind of looked to older people in the cast when I was doing stuff and I was super young, how they were, um, just because I was getting started. And, you know, we try to keep it, calm and, and sincere and hardworking. I I we both have no patience for shenanigans. So I think it's important to, you know, set the tone so people know like this is work and what we do and and this is a good group. You know, they are all different ages and from different places and uh, they come in every day and they work really hard. And they're all so ridiculously talented. They could all have their own show. You know, I'll just pass by somebody on stage, and I can hear them sing for just a brief moment, and it takes your breath away. So it's really cool to see them all kind of come together, because this is a very difficult show to cast. You have to, especially for the role of Strat, which Travis Cormier plays, you have to sing like Meatloaf. And Meatloaf was different, because he could sing very, very high, but his voice never thinned out. He still had the weight, like a very masculine weight to his voice, singing in the rafters. Um, That's very rare and very hard to find. And you have to look like you're 18 because we only say that 75 times in the show. Right. So, you know, at one point I was asked, do I know anyone who can sing this material? And I was like, I do, but they're older. Like, I don't know anyone who looks that young. And so they took their time casting that role they really looked and uh, i think only a small handful of people played the role and uh, with travis and i we're the second people to play these roles full time and uh that's a lot of pressure you know i the the couple well they became a couple the original falco and sloan fell in love in real life they just had a baby and they're engaged very exciting (laughs) and uh, they're like you know huge west end you know people and it was intimidating because I, I, I've never had the privilege of of playing a major role like that so early on in the game, and um, and I respect Sharon so much who plays uh, Sloan, so I was very very nervous. But when the director came in, he said, "I don't want." To, I said, "You know, do you want this to be funny? Do you want this to be serious?" And he said, "You know what? I don't want you to worry about it. He's like, let's just try it every way, and then I'll let you know." I was like, okay, so, you know, that's terrifying. But at the same time, I was like, I just have to be brave and just jump in. And um, he uh, he very much uh, guided us in the, in the story itself, kept it open for us to take on our own interpretations and build, still stay true to the intention of the characters. So that was a really cool experience. Um, but, you know, I was exhausted. Every day of rehearsal, it was like 9 to 5 every day for – uh two and a half weeks and then we went into 10 out of 12 and then we opened. So it was like everything happened in four weeks. Wow. So I would come home from rehearsal and be like like out <laughs> just because it was so much singing this music is is athletic. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like um how it was bad? You know baths was exhausting because you're you're using so much energy to to sing. Um so this you definitely get a workout in the show for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely eat more ice cream in your life <laughs> in the show because you are going to burn it off in five minutes. Um, but, but yeah, it's a it's it's a beast, but it's it's really cool.
0: You and Travis get to do Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which I mean is obviously the ultimate. I'd say that's probably the ultimate meatloaf showstopper, Jim Steinman song of all time. Absolutely. But is there another song somewhere in the show? that you wish you got to sing instead of someone else? Is there something that somebody sings that you're just super jealous of?
1: Well, if I were a boy, I would want to sing that out of hell just because that song is so freaking cool.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and I just love it, but you know, that's just not going to be, I'll have to do that on my own time. Um, <laughs> that would be like, like, you know, my living room performance. Um, I, I were really lucky because we, I, I, that Paradise would be the one I would be regretful if I didn't get to sing it because that is one of my all-time favorite songs. And that number is such a showstopper. It's so funny and so wild and so crazy. And um, I, I love performing it every night. Um, I do love uh, the arrangement uh, for the song For Crying Out Loud that Stratton and Raven sing is very beautiful. However, it's very hard so I'm not that jealous. It's more like a, oh wow, this is so much fun. And then when I hear them singing this like one particular section, I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm cool. I'm just gonna sit back here and listen and just enjoy this, that I don't have to stress out singing this thing every single night because it is, it is difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, Travis might also do a song that was never released uh, by Jim Steinman uh, called "What Part of My Body Hurts the Most." And uh, the first time I heard it, I was like, I want to sing this song. And it's extremely difficult. Um, and we get to sing it. And, of course, all coming back to me now, I would be really sad if I didn't get to do that one, um, which is probably the most terrifying song ever because, you know, Celine Dion recorded it. And everyone you know on TikTok was making the parody, you know, where they're like in their robes and like people are running around because it's so hard to sing. Yeah, And that was the song. uh, I wasn't in town for the first audition. And so I had to send a video submission and I was like, whatever, go big or go home. I'm going to record me doing this song in my bathroom. And um, I tried to sing through it once. And I just like burst into tears because it was, it's so hard. And I, I was like, I have to, I have to do this just for myself. I have to be able to sing this song. I'll be so scared of it. And so that song has a lot of um, meaning for me just cause it, it kind of got me over a little bit more of stage fright. Now we're always terrified. Anyone who's like, I don't feel any, it's blind. <laughs> That's a lie. We are all, every performer is scared to death. We just channel that into different areas. You know, if we're scared, we channel it into being very focused or we channel it into like high energy or we put it into dancing. Like we're scared to death and, um, we're always getting over it and, and pushing ourselves to be braver. And, um, was kind of like getting pushed out of the bird's nest like that song made me uh focus be brave believe in myself a little bit more and and work a little harder and so I I appreciate getting to sing just I only sing like a chunk uh but that chunk is terrifying and uh I I love singing it I would love to do the whole thing but that's also not true because I'd probably pass out
0: Jim Steinman has such a, a big catalog. I mean, he's known as the Meatloaf yeah. guy, but it, there's there's so much to his catalog. And you mentioned it's all coming back to me now, which is Celine Dion turned into a hit. Meatloaf recorded it as well, but was minor hit for him. Um, and you, they sneak making love out of nothing at all, which was an air supply song that gets snuck into the yeah. show. Are there any other Steinman songs that you would love to have seen in this show?
1: I love Life is a Lemon.
0: Such a Uh, great song.
1: It's such a good And the guitar riff in that is so sick. I love the guitar riff in that song. It's just a really great punk rock kind of feel. I love Life is a Lemon. And um, what was the other one? Um, Oh, Bad for Good.
0: Oh, Bad for Good's a great song. Bad for Good, which is
1: like also 45 minutes long. Yes. (laughs) But like, you know, uh, one thing we did have to cut for time is a, a monologue my character does. And in it, it's all Jim Steinman's prose and poetry because he wrote so much. And there's a little section in that that I had to sing and the director told me it was from one of his songs. I was like, oh, okay. So of course I like delve and try to find what song it's from and it's bad for good. And when I listened to all nine minutes of it, I was like, this song is so cool. You could do a whole musical based on this one song. It, I think it was hard when they started the show in 2017. The original version was three and a half hours long. Too long. <laughs> a whole. And I mean, Leslie missing the dust. It was like that. Ah. But um, Jim would just not cut anything. He was so, you know, eccentric and over the top. And that's his music. You know, I, I can't even imagine. And so it was very difficult for him to make cuts. And then the current version on tour, I believe, is about a little over two hours uh, with intermission. And so when they came here, which I really respect is they they knew better than to do that here. Just because our audiences are different, you know, it's, people like to do multitude of things, you know, a night. They want to go see two shows, you know. And so it's important that we stay in that, you know, 90 minute, 85 minute chunk. And um, I know it was heartbreaking for them to have to cut certain things. And we ended up having to cut you Know two more from reversal, and that was difficult, you know, especially for the people who were singing those songs. Um, but at the same time, the music is so full of exposition and memories and emotions, and all those things. It, you know, it the story is still there, you know, it's gonna kind of like it was kind of like, okay, this is tough, but you know, we still got it. Like, we don't, it was a good lesson too of um, when something isn't there, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that you're still, you know, showing that part. So having to cut a few of the songs after we had rehearsed them was, was tough, but um, you know, everyone just was professional. And you know, that was part of our contract. They said, you know, we we have to be at 90 minutes. So just so you know, if we go over, we will have to cut a song or two. And I was like, Oh God, please do not cut what part of my body hurts the most. Mm-hmm. Cause that's kind of unknown. And um, thankfully they didn't. And it's uh, as an actor too, it's such a great, Moment because a uh, Travis and our, our characters we had something happen before and seen before where it's, it's something goes too far and it's like what happens in a relationship when that happens um, how do you get back and so that whole song is these two people saying like I'm in so much pain you know of, of what happened between us my whole body aches I just don't know which part of it is is the most heartbroken. Mm-hmm. and uh, everyone's gone through something like that. And so watching people in the audience, you know, become emotional when they see it or hold the person next to them, that the hold that couple holds hold hands a little tighter is a, uh, is magical.
0: You mentioned um, listening to bad for good. I have a question. Was it the original Jim Steinman version of bad for good or the meatloaf version? Jim Steinman. Nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: I went old school.
0: You had to do some digging to find that. I bet.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was like, the other thing too, once I heard Jim sing, I understood why Meatloaf sang the way he sang. Yeah, clearly Jim was like, "It's like this, and it's like that." In our show too, like there are certain stylistic things that are so hammered that makes the music even more difficult. Like you'll sing the same phrase, but every time you sing the phrase, the accents on a different part, and this time it goes a little faster, this time it's a little slower. So your brain's like, bah. "But that's how Jim." Created music. Nothing is ever repeated. If you even listen to like his choruses, there's something slightly different every time you hear the chorus. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, how Prince would construct songs. Like he would open with a bridge, go into a verse, chorus it for a while, and then end it on a second verse. And you were like, What just happened? (laughs) It's just like, you know, their their musical journey is so unique. Mm -hmm. And and those both of those gentlemen wrote with so much intention and purpose so um and when you're singing it you're like ah i see why he did that he did this here because this is what's important about this phrase this time and he did this here because he wants this to be emphasized this time and then we're doing that physically on stage so it's been a a lesson i really enjoyed listening to jim's album when him singing the song it had a little different meaning because he was always talking about falling in love and being in the sand and the cold you know california breeze and wearing your levi jeans and it just was it's so romantic and um masculine it's like masculine romance which i think is a a voice that's not heard a lot Mm -hmm. and i love listening to you know like that whole like i'm a dude but like i'm totally romantic and in love and a sexy you know Manish way i was like "Ooh, yeah <laughs> it's just like a it's a voice that you don't you don't get to hear as often in in music uh right now so it's really cool to hear that mm. that kind of a, a romance from that point of
0: view my understanding with that bad for good album was that that was supposed to be the second Bad out of hell album but it was that was when Meatloaf and Jim were kind of in one of their mm-hmm. off again portions of their on again, off again relationship because there's a ton of music on the Bad for Good album that made it onto later Meatloaf albums, including Bad Out of Hell 2. I think, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, I want to say Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through was on the Bad for Good album, and I think Lost Boys and yeah. Golden Girls. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. even uh, maybe Out of the Frying yeah. Pan, Into the Fire
1: frying pan yeah that's in that album too yeah with with Jim and Meatloaf they both were big personalities uh very stubborn and um when it worked for them it worked and when it didn't work it did not so that was kind of like the magic between them is that when they were on the same page oh my god it was just like and that you know was the most success for both of them and then when they bumped heads, it was ugly mm-hmm. from, you know, from all the things I've been told from people who have worked with both of them. Cause I, you know, I did a lot of research. I interviewed a bunch of people who uh, worked with both. Um, and uh, I think that's the, the hard part about uh, some people, you know, who are artistic, you gotta be a little wacky. <laughs> We're all crazy. It's just like, you have to be a little wacky. Because if you think mainstream, you won't be able to see, um, you know, your imagination or someone else's imagination. And um, so you got to be a little wackadoodle doos to be able to to do that. Uh, It's just like, what level of crazy are we at what point? Um, And Jim was tough. I mean, he fired, I think he fired like over nine directors of the musical originally. I think he went through even more than that. And for various reasons you know, like just bumping heads over. And our director who who, you know, who made it through uh, Jay Sheep, he, he is very patient and quiet, very cerebral. And working with him was like working with Stanley Kubrick. He's very, uh, he blocks geometrically, but he had that kind of, I think, mind and energy that someone like Jim could work with where Jim understood uh, or I should say Jay understood uh, Jim's mind and why he was writing what he was writing and was um, naturally very respectful of that creatively. Um, you know, he would tell stories here and there of like, Oh, one time Jim yelled at me and we'd be like, Oh my God. And He's like, well, you know, give him some time, cool down. And then we worked it out. I'm like, Oh my God, I would have been a puddle of tears, you know, <laughs> but um, he really knew how to, um, to work with him mm-hmm. and that was the hard thing about meatloaf and jim is that they, they both were just so passionate and so talented that it kind of bit him in the butt sometimes but when they did come together jim understood uh that masculine romance and meatloaf embodied it because mm-hmm. he was like an everyman you know like he wasn't like the hottest dude to walk in the room but he was so sexy because he was confident and he wasn't afraid to say he was in love and and you know and that's like speaking from the ladies you know we love that we love confidence like you could look like you know a goof but like someone who's like genuinely confident and um straightforward that's that's really sexy and like that was what made you know meatloaf and all of his sweat you know very sexy because he was a very sweaty man uh, yes, Travis <laughs> Travis got a gift um, when we opened, and it's like a one of meatloaf's like scarves and it's signed and there's like a like a stain on it and it's Meatloaf's sweat <laughs> and we're you know framed, we're all looking at it, and I was like oh my god you even got like his man juice on here like it's was so cool all that and Travis was like, "Yeah, and it's kind of gross, but it's like really cool." I'm like, "Yeah!" Like, that was just the funny thing about meatloaf. You know, he just he was a he was really one of a kind. And Jim found his muse.
0: I had two items in my radio career bucket list. One of them was getting to meet and talk to Weird Al Yankovic, which which I did.
1: Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> and
0: the second one was getting to meet and talk to Meatloaf. I never got to meet him, but I did get to interview him, and I did get to talk to him. And I know it was during the, uh, the Hang Cool Teddy Bear album tour. And so that was in, again, one of the sort of off-again times with Jim. But I know in talking to him about working with Jim Steinman versus working with other writers and asking him what that was like, his big thing was it's not like working with Jim Steinman. There's nothing like working with Jim Steinman and there never will be anything like working with Jim Steinman. And, yeah. and he said that was the big thing when he went in to work with these writers as he told them, don't try to be Jim Steinman because <laughs> nobody else ever will be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There are certain, uh, with with great, you know, talent and genius comes the flip side, just like everything for everybody. And so that's where, you know, some people can be really hard to, to work with, or they're so passionate, or they have an idea. I mean, they wrote it, it's like their, their dream, their imagination, their creation. And so when someone manipulating that or changing it, you know, some people are like, oh, yeah, it's fine, let's just make it work. And Jim was like, absolutely not. Like, he was just very very intense but his music is so detailed um you can see and i mean he started writing that out of hell he was 19 and he wanted that musical since he was 19 years old and only finally came into fruition like right before the end of his his life Mm -hmm. so that's a that's a long time to wait for your dream to happen and you know and with meatloaf too you know his career has had so many ups and downs and extreme ups and extreme downs you know that's that's a lot for the human heart to take on and uh it's one of the sad things about this business is that um when it's great it's great and when it's not it's awful and it's how you know people handle it and there's so much heartache and god it just it just hurts you so much and um a lot of people you know fall victim uh, to it or it just, just it's just overwhelming and i've watched that um Fortunately and unfortunately, I saw a lot of that really young because I got started young, and I kind of saw the bad things that can happen in this business when I was a kid. Uh, I'm grateful that I saw it then um, because it made me make decisions later uh, to protect myself and and stay, you know, focused and healthy. But you know, you got someone who's plucked out of nowhere and they've got this gift, and you know, all these things are coming at them. It's really hard to manage all of that, and uh, the two of them. Like I said, when they bumped heads, it was just the worst because when they got along, ooh, they made some awesome stuff.
0: I am so stoked to get to Vegas and see this show. I can't wait to get down Yay. there and, and see you guys. Um, before I let you go, I have one very important question I have to ask. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will
1: he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And does he love me?
0: Yes. Yes. So again, on a hot summer night, <laughs> would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the podcasters.
1: Ah, you got me good. <laughs> we, we do say that in the show. And I have to say, every time our cast member says that line, I bet you say that to all the boys. Uh, My friend Mecca and I are on the other side of the stage. She plays Zahara and we always go, daddy, Super loud because we were saying that's like one of the sexiest things ever on that original album and uh, still the hottest thing ever.
0: And you're fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to jump on and chat. I can't wait to come see you guys in Vegas.
1: You're welcome. I'll see you soon.
0: You can catch Anne and the rest of the cast in Bat Out of Hell, the musical at the Paris Theater inside the Paris Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, six nights a week. For tickets and show times, visit BatOutOfHellVegas.com and follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at LV Bat Out of Hell. Also, if you want to keep up with what Anne herself is up to, give her a follow on Instagram at Ann Martinez LV. And of course, you can find all these links in the show notes at JeffDoesVegas.com. <laughs> And that wraps up another episode of Jeff does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at Jeff does Vegas.com.